Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sask Egg Today with Doug Faulkner. Good afternoon and welcome to Sask Egg Today. Coming up on today's program in the last week of 2023, canola and wheat futures are on the upswing. We'll hear from PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Piccolo on that. As well, this year was a challenging one for grain farmers and livestock producers in the west-central and southwest parts of Saskatchewan. Dry conditions plagued those regions through the summer, to the point where town hall meetings were organized to figure out how to help farmers get through it. We'll hear from Saskatchewan Agriculture Minister David Merritt on that. And wild oat is among the most serious grassy weeds on the prairies with losses as high as $500 million annually. We'll hear more from Dr. Brianne Tideman, who is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of Saskang Today. But first it's time for the Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. And that's a presentation of Milligan Bio. Milligan Bio now offers bio meal for your livestock, giving your animals more protein, more energy, and more of what they need. It's also brought to you by Sean Prahitka, your Remax Blue Chip Ag Division Special. Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. With Phil Spivak from Precision Weather. And Phil, once again, it's bright and sunny here in the Yorkton area. And it's a little cooler than yesterday, but it still is warmer than it should be for this time of year. Much warmer than it should be. And really, over the next uh, little while, we are going to see a pretty decent spike in that temperature. So while it's a little bit sluggish now, we will see a uh, nice recovery getting back to just about the same level as yesterday. Pretty close to 2 degrees for the afternoon. Uh, Not a whole lot of wind thus far. We'll be in the 10 to 20 range most of the day as the wind goes more south-southwest from south-southeast. But really, these next uh, couple of hours are going to be the key to the warming. Tonight we're clear, and I'm almost second-guessing myself now on the low. I think tomorrow's, tomorrow's low is minus 7. What I'm wondering now is if we don't get to it until late, we really hold a little milder through the night tonight. It's all the wind direction. Once the wind goes into the northwest, we'll start to drop off a bit, and we'll see that northwesterly wind through the day tomorrow. But it looks like for at least a while tonight, we're going to keep this southwesterly wind, and with that being the key, if it stays west to southwest uh, till even 2, 3 o'clock, we're still not dealing with enough time to get the temperature down that much. So somewhere between minus 3 and minus 7 tonight, either way, it's 15 to 20 degrees above normal. And uh, the wind not being a big factor, its direction aside, the speed itself not that strong. Uh, So wind chill not a huge factor. Lower minus teens will do it. 
For tomorrow, we are back to near or just above the freezing mark, but that northwest wind signals a little resistance to the warming. Even though it's a milder start, it'll be uh, sluggish and warming, and it will take that drop later in the day, likely even a pretty early drop starting in the afternoon, falling from 1 to minus 9. That's where I think we'll get to that minus 7 through the late evening hours. We may hit it twice. That's certainly a possibility as well. But minus 9 tomorrow night, uh, struggling really even more on Saturday, a cooler air mass settling in. As I was mentioning yesterday, there's this big block in the pattern, and as the block eases, that allows for the warm air, which is almost wedged in right now, to start to spread out. Not to completely depart. There's no cold air waiting to, to push it aside. It's just going to have that warmest air get uh, pushed aside. Minus four is the high on Saturday with a mix of sun and cloud. We'll still hold near minus two on Sunday. We could make one more run at freezing on Monday, uh, right around zero, maybe minus one. Either way, it's mild. Um, Still mostly sunny. And looking through the week ahead, first week of 2024, there is not much to speak of yet. There likely will be some snow later in the week. At this point, looking like uh, a light accumulation, but temperatures will back down, likely toward but still slightly above normal for most of the week. That's Phil Spivak from Precision Weather. Temperatures around the region this hour. The Paw, Show Lake Russell, and Roblin are all reporting in at minus 3 degrees. Swan River minus 4, Dauphin minus 2, Brandon minus 8. Regina is at minus 3, Saskatoon minus 1, Hudson Bay minus 2, Broadview Mooseman plus 1, Indian Head, zero. Winyard Wadena Kelvington, plus four. The Yorkton-Melville region has a sunny sky, a south wind at eight kilometers an hour. Seventy-five percent is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus three degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus six degrees. Yesterday, Yorkton reached a high of plus 2 degrees and dropped to a low of minus 12 degrees. There was no precipitation recorded in the 24-hour period ending at midnight last night. The normal high for this date is minus 12 degrees. The normal low is minus 23 degrees. The sun rose in Yorkton at 8.54 this morning and it will set at 4.49 this afternoon. Extreme temperatures for Manitoba and Saskatchewan yesterday. The Manitoba hot spot was McCreary at plus 10 degrees. The cold spot to Dooley Lake at minus 19 degrees. The Saskatchewan hot spot yesterday was Maple Creek at plus 11 degrees. The cold spot was Stony Rapids at minus 19 degrees. And that's a look at your agriculture weather. Please stay tuned. SaskAg Today will continue right after. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Saskag Today. In the last week of 2023, 
canola and wheat futures are on the upswing. PI Financial Commodity Futures Advisor Adam Piccolo says the March canola contract and the March Minneapolis wheat contract are up so far as this week is short due to Christmas Day and Boxing Day. Right now, the March contract is up approximately $17 a ton yesterday and today. So again, Monday was obviously Christmas holiday and Boxing Day. Canadian markets were closed. So we've really only had uh, one full day yesterday and kind of the morning here right now for canola trading. And yesterday was a fairly strong day. Uh, It seems like we might have maybe had some short covering on the January contract and maybe buying of the next month, the March. Uh, so that's where we're kind of seeing the March of around that seven uh, $670 a ton kind of right now. And then on the Minneapolis contract, uh, we've seen the March up approximately 14 cents a bushel here uh, in the last three trading days. So again, the U.S. was open on Tuesday. They don't they don't have Boxing Day to the south of us. So we did see the U.S. market still active. And this week, you know, I'm kind of watching for canola in particular. Uh, there are rains forecast in Brazil for next week. That's uh, potentially going to affect the soybean market. The U.S. dollar is still kind of pushing lower here, which it's actually the lowest in the last six months now. So that I would say it would have me a little bit more on the bullish side from a dollar standpoint for soybeans. And in terms of, again, the rain, maybe that's a little bit negative, but it is still quite dry down there, keeping, I would say, the, the futures on the soy side kind of fairly stable. And then kind of turning to the wheat front here, Elevated Black Sea shipping risks are kind of friendly kind of for the wheat markets to go higher. We did see on Tuesday a large increase, yesterday a bit of a pullback, and today we're back up higher here. So I, I'm seeing a little bit, again, of volatility into the end of the year, maybe some funds kind of positioning, taking losses, doing some tax loss selling potentially before uh, 2023 is done. He then provides an outlook for 2024. The couple of things that I'm talking to clients about, the first thing is is kind of that potential of the Canadian and U.S. dollar impacting grain prices. Uh, so the Canadian dollar now has rallied significantly here since kind of the beginning of November. Uh, it's gone up from about 72, 72 and a half cents or so, all the way up to almost 76 now. And if we do see the U.S. dollar still go lower, stock markets go higher, um, the Canadian dollar could go higher as well too. And I think that could be, you know, maybe a bit of a headwind for some commodity prices here in Canada. Uh, it could be a tailwind for some commodity prices in the U.S. And you know, right now, this year, especially for canola, who would have thought that uh, the best time to sell would be kind of uh, right after harvest? Uh, that's not normally the case, but it it could be that could be the case this year, where uh, the next few months, kind of over the winter, uh, we don't see those significant rallies potentially. And you know, if farms are still have quite a few bushels in the bin, uh, they might be forced to sell to to make room potentially. And that's when I talk about replacement strategies and and things like that with clients. Piccolo then summarizes 2023 from a grain and oilseed market standpoint. I would sum it up with the one word, volatile. (laughs) Whether it comes to Ukraine and Russia, 
whether it comes to just anything political that's been going on as well, too. And I think next year, maybe with the U.S. election year, then things could get a little bit more interesting as well, too. There could be a ceasefire in, in Russia, Ukraine, kind of read some about that. Uh, still a lot going on with China and negotiations for exports and, and things like that with them. So I think, and I'm sure a lot of farms are are seeing that as well too. Is just a lot of volatility in the in the grain markets, and uh, I think a a dollar cost averaging kind of approach is is something that a lot of farms are are looking at more so now because to time the the top, uh, it's uh, it, I'm not saying it can't be done, but it uh, it is obviously very hard to do. So Adam Piccolo is a commodity futures advisor with PI Financial in Winnipeg. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, Ag Review. There were strong gains for canola on the Intercontinental Exchange yesterday, as trading resumed after being closed for Christmas Day and Boxing Day. However, the gain will likely not be the prelude to a major upswing in the oilseeds prices. Rather, canola is likely to pull back once trading gets back into full swing after the new year. That's according to analyst Bruce Burnett of Markets Farm. He says there's nothing to push canola up a lot in the new year, but he acknowledged global oilseed stocks were tight. Burnett predicated his outlook on the sheer size of the forthcoming soybean harvests in Brazil and Argentina. As calving season draws closer, Ashley Parapelkin won't need to get up every three or four hours in the evening to check her cows. That's because the Alberta producer and her husband can monitor their animals' health, activity, nutrition and growth through cameras, thanks to facial recognition technology for animals called 360 Live ID. Parapelkin says cameras watch for signs such as contractions to determine if a cow is about to give birth and will send her a text to notify her. The platform was developed by a startup called OneCup AI. It's the creator of Bovine Expert Tracking and Surveillance, or Betsy. CEO Mocha Schmigelski says the technology has been on the market since 2022 and there are now 140 setups across Canada. Schmigelski says dairy farmers are not only interested in calving alerts, but alerts when cows are in heat and are ready to breed. High food prices in recent years have prompted farmers worldwide to plant more cereals and oil seeds, but consumers are set to face tighter supplies well into 2024 amid adverse El Nino weather, export restrictions, and higher biofuel mandates. Analysts say global wheat, corn, and soybean prices, after several years of strong gains, are headed for losses in 2023 on easing black seam bottlenecks and fears of a global recession, although prices remain vulnerable to supply shocks and food inflation in the new year. The El Nino weather phenomenon, which brought dryness to large parts of Asia this year, is forecast to continue in the first half of 2024, putting at risk supplies of rice, wheat, palm oil and other farm products in some of the world's top agricultural exporters and importers. Traders and officials expect Asian rice production in the first half of 2024 to drop 
as dry planting conditions and shrinking reservoirs are likely to cut yields. A civilian cargo ship struck a Russian mine in the Black Sea near Ukraine's Danube ports yesterday, injuring two sailors in an incident that underscored the dangers faced by those exporting Ukrainian grain during the war. The Panama-flagged vessel struck the floating mine during stormy weather as it went to pick up grain, according to Ukraine's southern defense forces, adding that churning seas often increase the risk from mines. As the fighting grinds on through the winter and likely into a third year after Russia's February 2022 invasion, and with little recent change along the front line, Ukraine is aiming to strengthen its financial resources for what could be a protracted war. After Russia pulled out of a UN-brokered export agreement last summer, Ukraine launched a new Black Sea shipping corridor to get grain, metals and other cargo to world markets. China has approved a first batch of seed companies to breed and sell genetically modified corn and soybean seeds, paving the way for commercial planting of GMO grains in a move that could cut its reliance on imports from the U.S. and Brazil. The Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs, in a notice dated December 25th, issued licenses to 26 local companies to produce, distribute and sell the GMO seeds in certain provinces. Though cautious about GMO technology, Beijing has been slowly moving to open up the market. It has approved more than a dozen genetic changes since 2019. The world's biggest buyer of soybeans and corn wants to reduce its reliance on imports amounting to more than 100 million metric tons a year to feed its livestock. And Saskag today is always available on podcast. Listen to past shows whenever you want. Find them easily by going to gx94radio.com. Also, you can hear the podcast on your Amazon Echo. Just enable the GX94 skill and choose Saskag today. And yes, it is free. Please stay tuned. Saskag today will return right after this. Welcome back to Saskag today. I'm Doug Falconer. It's sunny and minus 3 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. Well, this year was a challenging one for grain farmers and livestock producers in the west-central and southwest parts of Saskatchewan. Dry conditions plagued those regions through the summer to the point where town hall meetings were organized to figure out how to help farmers get through it. Saskatchewan Agriculture Minister David Merritt says the provincial government came through for producers with support programs like agri-recovery. So then it came down to what do we do? Uh, when I talked to the ranchers in the southwest, their biggest challenge was where do they go to find feed? And they had to go a long ways away from the southwest part of the province to find feed at a reasonable price. And they did, and many of them did. And so what we said is we would pay them uh, so much per head for uh, whether they had to buy the feed or they had to truck at home, whatever the case may be, that we were going to compensate them uh, on our side of it. And our share of that is, uh, was uh, $70 million, which equates probably right in the neighborhood of about $80 per head. And we asked the, the federal government to come in in August 18th. They didn't. We wanted to make sure that the producers knew they were going to get something from the province. So we announced 
And then later on in October, uh, the federal government came in. They didn't come in at the full share, but they came in with uh, about uh, 70% or a little over 70% at, at around $77 million. So the uh, livestock producers will now get uh, about $150 per head for breeding stock. That's for their cows, uh, heifers, and for bulls as well. Uh, so we thought it was important to do that. Uh, hopefully uh, the program is working for a lot of uh, ranchers. I know I've talked to some personally. They're still hauling feed as we speak now. So uh, they will obviously get their bills and their uh, applications in probably after the new year. So it was, uh, it was important for us. To also available was the low yield threshold program and the Crown Grazing Lease Rental Reduction Program. So what we did earlier in the year, we, we uh, looked at the uh, write-off for crops again, like we did in 2021, and we allowed uh, farmers that if they had a low-yielding crop, they could, uh, if it was, say, spring wheat, for example, we, took the, we doubled the low-yield threshold to 10 bushel acre, and if it was going to run less than that, they could... Uh, they could do what they wanted with that crop. They could, uh, you know, sell it to a rancher if they wanted or if they wanted to harvest it, they could. But they had the option if they wanted to uh, sell it to a rancher, they could. And it wouldn't imp- and it, that crop would go to zero, but it wouldn't affect their, uh, their crop insurance side as well. So we did that. Uh, we looked at the lease rates uh, for the year. We froze them for the year when we saw, you know, how dry it was getting. So we froze the lease rates for the uh, cattle folks as well, the livestock folks as well. And when you look at the uh, at uh, where we went, and if they had to pull their herd off, we reduced their uh, their lease uh, fees as well by uh, a maximum. If they pulled 50% of the herd off, but they had to pull at least 20% off to qualify. There was more support for ranchers. Well, when I look at the support program we have for the livestock sector, you know we have the the uh, forage rainfall insurance program that this year paid out. Uh, in the neighborhood of $60 million. Uh, that goes just to, uh, just to ranchers. So when I look at that and I look at the, um, uh, the other programs we have with the, with the rainfall insurance, that side of it, it, it's good. Plus, we did some on, on um, wildlife uh, predation as well. Uh, we put some enhancements in that program where ranchers can now uh, make application to crop insurance that they can build, you know, a significant fence around their haystack to keep uh, to keep uh, wildlife out, so it doesn't destroy their their feed supply. So we're, we, you know, we've done some things that way to really help the uh, the sector, and and hopefully it's right. We're obviously looking for you know ways that we can improve uh, the programs. Unfortunately, when we try to improve, we obviously have to have support of the federal government when we do it as well. And uh, you know, and then it, 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 whatever we do, obviously in many cases it comes with a price tag. So then it's just uh, the process and how we make that work. But it wasn't all doom and gloom, as Merritt notes some regions had good crops. On the crop side, we did see some pretty uh, high-yielding crops, uh, obviously in the northern part of the province, northeast side, even down towards the east side, and even in some pockets in the south as well. Uh, Even the south-central part of the province, we saw some pockets where they saw some pretty good yields as well. So uh, I think we're probably going to be north of, 32 million metric tons of production this year uh, when it's all said and done, which is, uh, which is an okay year. It's not where we want to be, and hopefully we'll get to better one. At least the uh, cattle prices are strong. Uh, commodity prices are, you know, are strong. 
so hopefully uh, that helps pull everybody through. Back in May, when the first Saskatchewan crop report was released, Merritt expected total production to be around 40 million metric tons. In 2022, there was nearly 35 million metric tons of total production. Livestock market conditions. U.S. live cattle futures for February are trading at 168.67 this afternoon. That's down 60. April live cattle trading at 172.07, down 90. March feeder cattle trading at 223.62, down 177. April feeder cattle trading at 229.20, down 170. February lean hogs trading at 68.20, that's down 167. April lean hogs trading at 74.75, down 117. And that's the livestock market conditions. Now it's time for the Heartland Livestock Report from Yorkton. Good afternoon, this is the Yorkton Heartland Livestock Market Report for the week of December the 28th. What a very exciting year we had. I would like to thank all of the current customers and new customers for that. Our first pre-sort of the new year will be Wednesday, January the 10th, 1900 head consigned so far. This first sale is always a smoking hot sale. One person said, you don't have to bring them all, but bring a few. Please book your trucks and phone in your feeder numbers. That'd be greatly appreciated that. At this time, myself and the rest of the Heartland staff would like to wish everyone a new year filled with good health, joyous, and a prosperous new year. And enjoy this weather we're having. And to all of you who are calfing early, what great weather for that. Should be smiles for all of you. That's it for this week at Heartland Yorkton. Have a safe New Year's, everyone. I'm Harvey Exner. Have a good day. Welcome back to Saskag Today. Wild oat is among the most serious grassy weeds on the prairies, with losses as high as $500 million annually. As a tool to help farmers manage this issue, the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee was formed in partnership with the Canadian Weed Science Society. The goal is to educate and engage farmers to develop and adopt approaches to managing wild oats. Dr. Brianne Tideman is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta, and she delves into the method of proper sampling. If you are sampling for testing, and I'm going to focus on wild oat, number one, you need mature seed. If you have really green, really immature seed, they don't grow, we can't spray them, so we can't test them. So they have to be mature seed. You need to collect enough for us actually to do testing on. We like to have one to 200 individuals growing per sample that we test. So we need, if you're getting six or seven subgroups tested, well, we need hundreds and hundreds of seeds. One of the best tricks that I have seen for sampling wild oat for resistance testing came from Clark Brenzel. The sweep nets that the entomologists talk about having and going and sweeping your crops for insects, you can also take those sweep nets and swing them through a mature wild oat patch, end of July, beginning of August, and you will get a very nice, clean wild oat seed sample for, for use in resistance testing. It's a really slick little trick. And if you look on Twitter, it would be a couple years ago now, but I think we shared a picture from a farmer that had done this and has a picture in a sweep net and it's just these gorgeous, well, wheat scientists, sorry, gorgeous dry mature wild oat seeds that are perfect for resistance testing 
She outlines which labs do herbicide-resistant testing. The Crop <laughs> Protection Lab in Saskatchewan does commercial testing where you can submit your samples. It's, I think, 125 bucks to 200 bucks somewhere in there per sample. You can do this with other weeds too, not just wild oats. If you're putting in your wild oats, you can select sort of which of the group one subgroups you want tested, which of the group two subgroups you want tested, if you want triolate tested, and they will screen that and you'll get your samples back. EggQuest in Manitoba also does wild oat testing. And then the Pest Surveillance Initiative, my understanding is they do kosher testing, not wild oats. Charles Geddes in Lethbridge does some resistance testing, but only if it is a suspected novel resistance. So group one, group two, group eight resistance is not something he would test. For wild oat, it would be something like glyphosate resistance would be something that he would test, which we really hope we're not finding, but that would be something he would test. Um, otherwise, it's it's the commercial labs, crop protection lab or, or EggQuest for wild oats. Dr. Tideman then talks about how to interpret the lab results. You have to have a clear picture in your head of where you sampled from. So the results that you will get back will tell you the percentage of the seeds that were tested that are resistant to that product. So I'm just going to pick a product, Panoxidin. You got your wild oats tested for Panoxidin resistance, and it came back that 64% of those seeds were resistant to Panoxidin. Okay, so in that sample that we sent in, we have certainly developing resistance to panoxidin, even pushing into that higher levels of resistance. What did that look like in your field? Was it you had wild oats surviving across your field? So, okay, that, that resistance is probably pretty well, well spread across your field because that's where you sampled from. Or did you have one small tiny patch of wild oat that survived and that's what you sampled from? Because then what that tells you is that product worked still across most of the field and you only had one small area where that resistance is developing. Now, how you react to that is going to depend on your full spectrum of results. One of the questions I've had over the last few years since starting as a, as a weed scientist here has been, you know, I sprayed X, Y, or Z product on my wild oat. I've got resistance. What should I spray? And I can't answer that. You can't predict based on a single product or a single subgroup which other products or subgroups you might have resistance to. It depends on the mutation. It depends on if it's metabolic. It depends on if it's target site. We don't have predictability without knowing exactly what the mutation is to know what other product will work. So you might get back results and you might say, okay, that panoxidin isn't working in this tiny little patch. So I'm still going to use that as an option in my herbicide rotation, but I'm going to add something else to that particular patch to manage that patch. If it's across the whole field, it might be, okay, that product is now out of my rotation and I have these other products that are still effective, so I'm going to go there. It might be that's the best shot that I've got left for an in-crop, so I'm going to combine a pre-residual with that with some other IWM strategy. So how you react to that really depends on what those results represent in your field. So when you are sampling for wild oat, I'd be drawing a bit of a map or taking a bit of notes on where did I sample from? What did this field look like? Take some pictures. This was across my field. This was a patch. What was it that you're dealing with? So that you know a little bit more about what those results mean to you when they come back. She then talks about an integrated weed management approach. A couple of the things that we know work really well um, is to diversify a rotation. So when we grow a spring annual after a spring annual after a spring annual, our weeds adapt to that life cycle stage of our crops. If you have the ability to add a winter or fall life cycle stage 
plant, winter wheat, fall rye, winter triticale, anything like that, it gives the crop a competitive advantage against the wheat because it's up before the wild oats. So it helps compete against those wild oats. Fall rye is one that we've seen quite a bit of success with because it's quite a competitive winter cereal. Now, having mentioned that with winter cereals, one of the key caveats to that is that the winter cereal survives the winter. If you have poor winter cereal survival, poor winter wheat survival, and you've got a weak crop stand, that can be obviously sort of the goes the other way for the wild oats because the wild oats will take advantage of that space and that vacuum essentially in the crop. One that I don't think gets used enough personally is increasing a seeding rate. We have seen really good results with increasing seeding rates of both wheat and barley to increase the competitiveness with wild oat. And I do get some pushback on you have to account for seed costs in that. But again, if you know where your patch is, you can increase your seeding rate in that patch. You can swing the seeder through one extra pass or across it if it's close to a headland and and increase your seeding rate in that patch. And it can make a really big difference to the, the stand of wild oats. That's a big one. Giving your crop the competitive edge. So just good basic agronomics. Don't seed your crops four inches deep because they're gonna struggle to get out of the ground. And I know that's a ridiculous exaggeration, but thinking about that seed placement, thinking about your fertilizer placement, making sure you're feeding the crop and not the weeds. Broadcast is, is sort of the extreme example and we talk about it for all different kinds of reasons in terms of fertilizer losses and, and that type of thing, emissions, everything else. But from a weed science perspective, if you broadcast nutrients across the field, you're also very much feeding those weeds in the interrows and things like that. So it's that's kind of the extreme example, but don't feed the weeds, feed the crop. Don't stress your crop out. Don't put it too deep. You know, make sure it's got moisture. Make sure you're not having too much seed place fertilizer that you're burning it a little bit or stressing it out that way. Managing insects can actually have a big impact on your weed management. And I'm going to switch weeds for a second just as an example. It was such a visual example here. A number of years ago, we had pea leaf weevil invade some of our pea plots and they hammered our pea plots. Our peas were really unhappy. And the cleavers pressure that came through those peas because of a non-competitive crop stand was incredible. Added to that, we had group two resistance in our cleavers and we had sprayed a group two. And we also got a phantomyces. Those peas had a very rough year that year. But the point stands, if the crop is fighting another pest, it's not going to be able to compete as well against the weeds. So that whole integrated crop protection, making sure your crop is healthy and happy is also going to impact your weeds. I have to say it because I'm me and this is what I work on, but not spreading the wild oats across the field at harvest time would also be a good thing. So I'm the seed destructor girl. I'm the the harvest weed seed control girl. So I have to bring it up here. Steve Shirtlift did research years ago that showed that combines are spreading wild oats up to 145 meters down the field. If it's a resistant wild oat, you just went from having a small patch to having a very big patch because you just spread it all the way down the field. So thinking about what our combines are doing with those weed seeds is really important. So either don't combine the patch, bale the patch, mow the patch, do something different to the patch rather than generously seed it across your field to be next year's problem. I'm obviously a fan of looking at the impact mills built right into your combine. Then you don't have to do anything to the patch except turn the mill on while you go through it. I know they're expensive. I know all of those things. And I do know that you know, wild oat drops a lot of its seeds. So maybe it's not the best target for driving down densities with a mill. I get that. But those seeds that are on there are still being spread by the combine. 
those few seeds, even if it's just a couple, you spread five seeds down the field and you spread five seeds from each of those the next year and five seeds the year after that, your wild oat problem has just grown exponentially. So not spreading those weeds, I think is a really important one as well. And that comes down to if you've got resistant wild oat in one field, Clean your equipment before you go to the next field. Don't drag them to the other field where you don't have a resistance problem yet or where you don't have a wild oat problem yet. Thinking about what what am I carrying with me, I think, is, is really important. That's Dr. Brianne Tideman, a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. I'll have more with her coming up right after this. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading down across the board this hour. March canola trading at 662.40, down $6.80. May canola trading at 669.40, down $7.40. March Minneapolis wheat trading at 724 and three quarters, up three cents. March Kansas City wheat trading at 642 and a half up seven and a half cents. March Chicago wheat trading at 6.30 per bushel, up seven cents. March corn trading at 4.74 and a quarter, down two and a quarter cents. March soybeans trading at 13.10 and a quarter, down 10 and a quarter cents. March oats trading at 3.88 and a half, that's up 15 and a quarter cents. And that's the Commodities Update. Welcome back to SaskAg Today. I'm Doug Falconer. We've been talking to Dr. Brianne Tideman about the wild oat issue on the prairies. She outlines the research she's working on right now. Harvest weed seed control would be me. One of the main things we're focusing on right now is that patch management idea. So trying to actually document how big of a difference it can make to have a mill or have harvest weed seed control implemented versus not. So how big of an impact does that make on the size of your patches? So that's our big focus right at the moment with harvest weed seed control. We did just finish up our Harrington seed destructor work in the field where we were actually field testing it in 20 producer fields. It was only a three-year project, so we didn't see a lot of significant differences in terms of numbers. And I will say from the science side of things, we learned a lot of things not to do when you're setting up these types of studies. And that information is going out to a lot of other folks working on harvest weed seed control so that we can get better data in the future. Just things like putting it in the weediest part of the field for our studies means that you're going to have to have a much longer term study to actually see results because there's just so many seeds there. So things you learn as you go. In terms of wild oat in general, I want to use a couple examples from my program. I've got a study looking at competitive wheat and barley varieties. So I have irritated myself over the years by talking about integrated weed management and recommending farmers use a competitive variety. And inevitably I get asked, well, how do I know which one's competitive? And I say, you don't, that's not available to you. So that point was really not useful to you at all, but you know. And so what that project is looking at it, and it includes wild oat in sort of a wheat community, is trying to develop a method where we could actually rank wheat and barley varieties in terms of their competitiveness. So similar to how there's a ranking given for a variety for their disease resistance, susceptible, moderately susceptible, moderately resistant, resistant, you would have a competitive, moderately competitive, moderately uncompetitive maybe, and then non-competitive or, or something along those lines is, is what we're trying to develop so that that information could actually be included in the seed guides. 
And I know it's not going to be a top priority for choosing a variety, but maybe if you've come down to two varieties, both are a good fit, that might be that one additional step that you take for, for your weed management. There's similar studies going on, sort of system studies. We just finished up a five-year study looking at crop rotation, increased seeding rates, chaff collection as a harvest weed seed control method with and without in-crop herbicide applications, including wild oat. In a couple of those treatments, we were able to go three years with no wild oat herbicides and have the same wild oat densities as the canola wheat with full herbicide applications. One of those strategies in that study that I didn't talk about in the IWM, that is a gross miss on my part, is silage. Early cut barley silage, so if you can cut the barley within a week of head emergence, can be really, really effective on reducing wild oat densities. In some of the work that my predecessor here, Neil Harker, did, he with three years of early cut barley silage, had lower wild oat densities than growing barley for grain with full herbicide rates on a non-resistant wild oat stand. So that early cut barley silage, barley is a very competitive crop. Increased seeding rates and early cut silage can really make a big difference on, on wild oat densities because you're also preventing any seed bank inputs. Areas of interest that we've got research proposals on right now includes things like trying to understand group 15 resistance, so trilate and pyroxysulfone cross-resistance. We know we have a population that has resistance to pyroxysulfone and trilate in the group ones and twos. That was in Manitoba. That was work done by Amy Manger. Amy Delacuy is her married name now when she was a master's student. But trying to understand that sort of trilate pyroxysulfone resistance, we're seeing group one mixtures coming out and trying to understand what is the impact of those types of things on control, what's the impact on selection pressure, because that's that's something we really don't know yet with wild oats. So trying to understand some of those things, you know, from, from the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee perspective, we had a group of farmers in Daysland that we were sort of encouraging just to try wild oat management things that were, there was a couple looking at inversion plowing, trying to bury those wild oat seeds and then sort of switch back to a no-till system. So one extreme, I guess, tillage event to bury those seeds and then go back to sort of a no-till system and, and see what that did on the wild oat densities. And there was even they pulled out a rotary hoe and used that in a no-till situation, which was surprisingly less disturbance than I expected it to be considering how it was previously used. But looking at things like that as well and, and just trying to listen to producers and, and hear what they're willing to try, wanting to try and what could work in their management systems too. Dr. Brianne Tideman is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. She made her comments on the Wheat Profit podcast from the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission. It's now 1 o'clock, time to check the GX94 precision weather forecast. For the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions today, sunny skies, wind south-southwest at 10 to 20, and a high of plus 2 degrees. For tonight, clear. Winds west-southwest at 10 to 20, a low of minus 7. For tomorrow, mainly sunny. Winds northwest at 15 to 25, a high of plus 1, an overnight low of minus 9. For Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud. Winds north-northwest at 10 to 20, and a high of minus 4. For New Year's Eve, Sunday, mainly sunny, a high of minus 2. And for New Year's Day, Monday, mainly sunny, and a high of 0. In the Paw, Show Lake Russell and Roblin, it's minus 3 degrees. Swan River is at minus 4, Dauphin minus 2, 
Brandon minus 8. Regina is at minus 3. Saskatoon minus 1. Hudson Bay minus 2. Broadview Mooseman plus 1. Indian Head 0. Winyard Wadena Kelvington plus 4. The Yorkton Melville region has a sunny sky, a south wind at 8 kilometers an hour. 75% is the relative humidity. The temperature is minus 3 degrees. With the wind chill, it feels more like minus 6 degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for SaskAg today. For today, be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 12.15 for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines.